Welcome to Forward. Educate yourself on the new world. The podcast of the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance with your host, Dr. Bobby Maybe. Real chiropractic talk. No rainbows, no unicorns. Start putting in the work. The biggest names in the industry. The legends, the innovators, the up-and-comers. This is the podcast for progressive DCs. So buckle up. Passion is the feeling you have that you would probably do this for free and you can't believe somebody pays you to do it. Join Parker Seminars in the heart of Las Vegas, February 21st through the 23rd for an incredible three days of growth, education, and inspiration. Featured among our 37 speakers are world-renowned evidence-based leaders, Dr. Craig Liebenson and Dr. Stuart McGill. The Parker Seminars Las Vegas has the People Shark, Damon John, and Baseball Hall of Famer, Cal Ripken Jr., sharing their unprecedented insights on leadership and success. Please visit parkerseminars.com and use our special promotional code CLV50 to receive $50 off our unheard of Las Vegas single attendee registration price. Register today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Forward, the podcast of the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. I'm your host, Dr. Bobby Maybe. Uh, today's episode with Gray Cook is going to be a long one because Gray Cook knows some stuff and he's not afraid to share it. So uh, we have a lot of sponsors and housekeeping to get through before we get to the episode, uh, but that is going to be somewhat brief today. Uh, we definitely want to give a shout out to one of our sponsors that has uh, offered something new for our listeners and for FTCA members, and that is the American Chiropractic Association. If you're not a member, uh, perk up your ears because this is the moment. Uh, the ACA is a hands-on partner with the FTCA. They've raised their standards of membership, insisting on evidence-based care and working hand-in-hand with other healthcare professionals. Visit acatoday.org backslash join to find out more about how joining the ACA can benefit you and your practice. And FTCA members can save 25% on their ACA membership dues. Just use the promo code FTCA when signing up. Uh, I also want to make sure that you check out AMT, Advanced Musculoskeletal Therapies, home of the Miracle Wave. Check out the website, themiraclewave.com. If you ever had questions about acoustic wave therapy, uh, otherwise known as extracorporeal shock wave therapy, what it can do for you and for your practice and patients, uh, these are definitely the folks to talk to about shock wave therapy. Their website is themiraclewave.com. Of course, where would we be without our sponsors at Pain Zone? Uh, Pain Zone, check out ipainzone.com for some free samples and uh, talk to the folks over at MedZone and Pain Zone, and they will take very good care of you in addressing all of your needs when it comes to products and analgesics for your office. Um, Great Cook, if you have been living under a rock, I guess, uh, and don't know who Gray Cook is, here's a little brief bio from the FMS website, functionalmovement.com. Gray Cook is a practicing physical therapist, orthopedic certified specialist, and certified strength and conditioning specialist, and an RKC kettlebell instructor. He's founder of Functional Movement Systems, a company that promotes the concept of movement pattern screening and assessment. His work and ideas are at the forefront of fitness, conditioning, injury prevention, and rehabilitation. You'll find him lecturing on these topics uh, 
uh, several weekends each month worldwide, including our own Forward 2019, which will be September 20th through the 22nd at Logan University in St. Louis, just outside the suburbs. Gray received his graduate physical therapy education at the University of Miami School of Medicine with a research focus on orthopedics and sports rehabilitation. One of the focuses of our talk here today with uh, Gray is uh, it's the capstone on a couple podcasts I've done, one with uh, Professor Stuart McGill and one with Dr. Craig Liebenson. All three of these, Gray, Stu, and Craig, were involved in an event at Stanford University uh, circa 2014, I believe, maybe a little bit sooner, maybe 2013. I don't remember the exact year. I think we discussed it in the podcast. If if you need the context for that event as it's brought up in this podcast, you can find the video, the Stu McGill, Gray Cook, and Craig Liebenson Assessing Movement DVDs, digital and DVD, if you still plunk a disc into a machine somewhere out there. Uh, you can find those at otpbooks.com. And you can search for McGill Cook Liebenson, Assessing Movement, and I would uh, check out all their products. I do like OTP on target publications, and the products they have are awesome. So definitely check them out. And you can get that video for some reference of what we're going to talk about in this podcast. Uh, other than that, there's one funny backstory to all three of these podcasts. Uh, I, I, uh, I really look up to these three individuals and what they've brought to our our professions of conservative care, musculoskeletal care, and it's been a dream come true to interview them on the podcast. And ironically, these three podcasts have had sound issues with every single one of them. So what you'll hear in this one is that I my mic actually isn't even plugged in. It's uh, the the computer's just taking air, taking my sound from the ambient air of. Uh, my uh, beat laboratory down here in, in my basement of my house, or I guess what my detractors would say down here in my mom's basement, right? <laughs> so I hope you enjoy this podcast with Gray, um, and uh, we will see you on our next episode of Forward the Pod. Oh, actually, you know what? We're going to see you at the end when we do uh, the Pain Zone finish. Dun dun dun. We're going to squeeze one of those in. Even though this is a long podcast, we have to finish with the pain zone finish. It's mandatory. Uh, so enjoy, and I'll talk to you later. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Forward, the podcast of the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. I am your host, Dr. Bobby Maybe, and uh, this one is a feather in my own personal cap because... I have wanted to do this podcast for a very long time. I have already interviewed uh, Stu McGill and Dr. Craig Liebenson, all who have attended this Stanford event, which we'll kind of do a little highlight before we get to, but we need to bookend those conversations with one more participant in that process, and that is Gray Cook. And Gray Cook is joining us today, as you know from my intro. Um, so first and foremost, Hello, Gray. How you doing, Bobby? Great. Um, before we get started, because the reason I really wanted you on the podcast was because we did get some input from Craig about the Stanford event and his perspective, and I've had tons of uh, res uh, response and perspective from Stu. Stu's a personal mentor of mine, uh, but we've never really got to hear your end of the story, and uh, so first and foremost... 
Stanford itself was an event, and I have my little assessing movement, a contrast in approaches and future directions. Gray Cook, PT, Stuart McGill, PhD, with Craig Liebenson, DC, my little book. It happened January 25th, 2014. It was hosted by Stanford Sports Medicine. It was unfortunately billed as a debate, but I don't think it was ever intended to be a debate. Is that true? It, it wasn't, but I tell you what, I think a lot of people wanted it, wanted it to be one. And uh, even though I, th I think Craig was the least scared of that because Craig doesn't mind the controversy. Craig uses the controversy as his instrument to demonstrate that, that reconciliation, which is, which is what's so special about Craig. And, and the cool thing is, unlike most people in the profession, I knew who Craig Liebenson was before I did Stu McGill. I graduated physical therapy school in, in 1990 and quickly wound up working under an elite manual therapist named Paul Hughes in Decatur, Illinois. Uh, yeah. And Paul Hughes practiced directly under James Syriax and worked with the Norwegians like Freddie Keltenborn and stuff and was a personal friend of Paris and Grimsby and all those guys in the manual therapy world. So I'm a year out working under a guy that I had no business to even hold his, hold his clipboard. And yet he's taking time with me, showing me that my confidence and my uh, skill set <laughs> doesn't fit the reality that I'm prepared to deliver. I mean, he really, he really humbled me. It was the closest thing to uh, a residency or an internship with a, a high-end, very objective mentor that I could have put myself through. Are you and, seeing that PT grads as well? Because this happens a lot in, with Cairo grads too, that they're not as well equipped to practice as they might think they are when they first graduate. No, no. They're, they're about as equipped as somebody who's read a firearms book but never been to the range. That's about how equipped they are, which is not meaning thing. I want you to know firearm safety and I want you to know terminology, but when we get on the range, it's going to be loud, noisy. You're going to be imperfect. Things are going to happen. And, and it's not going to be all positive feedback. And you're going to have to figure out how to become a good marksman in spite of all that. We and may miss lunch. Jam. The wind may be blowing. <laughs> you yeah. know. The gun is going to jam. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, that's, that's where I really think the, the more involved internships and residencies and, and God bless Phil Plisky and Kyle Kiesel at University of Evansville because the, the physical therapy residents that they're getting, giving us that go through that sports medicine residency basically have a job six months before they graduate simply because Phil and Kyle have, have beat the standard operating procedure into them so enough they could do an SFMA in their sleep they're more worried about getting their dry needling skills or manipulative skills or working on exercise progressions. Finding the target is not a problem for those guys. And that's where I like to, that's where I like to start with people. My, my career forces me to help them find the target, but man, the, the jazz starts playing when we've got five clinicians with different backgrounds in the room that can simply appreciate movement on the exact same page of paper, meaning that's all the movement screen has ever been for me and the SFMA has been for me is a simple tool to look at global movement with communication and accountability. And that's the exact same thing I said at Stanford. That's what I, that's what I wanted to come from what some people thought was a debate was simply me and Stu 
digging up controversial issues and not getting pissed off about it or needing to blog about it or say something negative. We simply are two guys leaning into the punches, knowing that they're not meant to hurt us. They're meant to wake us up and make sure we can reconcile our statements with, with both science and real life practicality. Uh, yeah. And that's a question I want to ask when we get to the end of the Stanford conversation. Um, so, so the gist for the people who weren't there was basically one quote unquote argument of the Stanford event was, uh, was, uh, Gray's argument that you're going to look at, well, it wasn't your argument, but it was the argument people placed on you that you're, you're making a generalized view of, of a mass amount of people that you're putting all people into one box. And then Stu's argument was that all people should be assessed individually. That's the most layman, uh, layman assessment of the Stanford event we could possibly say. And then those two ideas were, were bounced off of each other. Can you look at all individuals from a general movement perspective, or do you have to take this uh, Starman approach of each individual has to be assessed individually? N equals one. You know what? Uh, I, think, I think what you just brought up is, is really what I'm dedicating the next year of my life to. It isn't either or, it's if then. And if we go individual up front, we will lose the benefit of standard operating procedure. Because what if I turned a bunch of people loose on 600 people in a gymnasium and said, listen, I need to find out how we can individually help all these people with vision. Then group one's gonna go and do some kind of peripheral vision assessment. Group two is gonna value color blindness over depth perception. Group three is all into uh, target acquisition, right? Everybody's agenda who's assessing ends up influencing the data. So here's how you reconcile a room of 600 people who need their vision checked. You get out a friggin' eye chart and the ones who are 2020 take the left door and the ones who aren't take the right door. And the ones who are on the right door get an assessment and the ones who are in the left door, if they're going to become pilots or hockey players, we do extra stuff. And if they're going to be accountants and bookkeepers, they're good enough. That's, that's how you do it. So the standard operating procedure calls the groups so the people who need the assessment get it and the people who don't need the assessment get the thing they need assess assessed instead of focusing on the thing I want to deliver. And so too often we have these great assessments and these unbelievable ways of breaking things down and we simply to aim at somebody and that's they're not their weakest link. And so if you're working on something that's not the weakest link, expecting a feedback loop, you're not going to get it because it's not part of the heartbeat of this thing that's going on. So Stu is exactly right. The, and that's the one thing that I think came out of the podcast that you did with him that may not be evident in the, the, the DVD that, in, the, in the download that Lurie put together when she filmed that thing is Stu's not a hard scientist. I think what I got from your interview with Stu is Stu came at healthcare saying, you guys are disappointing me. You're not being a patient advocate. You're trying to put people on a conveyor belt. Right. And I feel the exact same way, but I tell you what, I want a sorting right in front, I, you know, right at the end of the conveyor belt to sort left and right. So, you know, when people heard me talking about the movement screen, they were misconstruing the term screen. Every human being can go through a screen and it's going to catch some people and not other people. And the people it catches deserve greater intervention and the people it doesn't catch need to know that that thing is not their weakest link. And the quicker they know that, 
the the better it is because I've always tried to use the phrase, we're not the police of perfection. I am not trying to sell you perfection because I can't demonstrate the the difference that having a 21 on a movement screen and simply not failing a movement screen will mean to you unless you're going to do something ambitiously above average in movement. So average is good enough on the eye chart in most cases, and average is good enough blood pressure in most cases. Well, what's average movement? If we don't have a baseline, then every one of us is making up the boundaries for intervention as we go. And unfortunately, sometimes that could, the intervention you choose to do on somebody could actually be more influenced by the course you just took or the money you need to make to pay the rent than it could be the thing they need. And so what I'm trying to do is simply say that if somebody's got 2020 and you're trying to sell them, you know, glasses or visits of, you know, whatever to make them 2010, that's a slippery slope. So just know that and know that, you know, that's the way I'm coming at movement. I want to find the movement problems and big movement problems that are going to affect your life. Announce themselves in signs before symptoms show up. The problem with the science in front of us is we look for local, not global signs of movement dysfunction. So it's very, it, you know, in, in some people, they start the exam on the table. And as a matter of fact, I was to, uh, you, you come in and tell me your knee hurts. I know a lot of people that put you on the table and do an anterior drawer test on you. Yeah. But that's that's their... not where the knee exam starts. That's not where the knee exam starts. The knee exam starts with a history and then an observation of global movement. And I don't think Stu would disagree with that. I think Stu was largely disappointed when he's reporting research findings to clinicians. And they're like, so then what would you do? And he's like, you don't already know? <laughs> and that's, that's like me the day I found out there wasn't a tooth fairy, you know? That's like me finding out that everybody didn't conduct themselves like the adults on the Andy Griffith show. You, you, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, There's... Yeah. There's, there's all these motives and agendas and stuff that doesn't have anything to do with why you should be doing your job. And so that's the part of the, Stu's hard science and his ability to deliver that and still deal with the hard questions and not, not get over emotional. That's, that's a testament to him. And knowing that, you know, a lot of people refer to, you know, Stu as a clinician. And he's the first one to tell you I'm not a clinician, but I've been pulled into clinical situations simply because a solution is not obvious for the people that should be qualified to find it. I got, I got to respect him for that. He's a, he's, he's reluctantly gone that way. He does, he's not trying to build himself as an insurance provider. He's simply trying to say, Hey, if I can do this, you guys should pick it up and, and carry it a little bit further, you know? And, and Craig is the guy that says we don't need to pick either or it's if then this. So, so I would say basically screens are not assessments, but they do tell you who needs an assessment by flunking a screen. And that's, that's all the screens ever been. It doesn't, the, the relationship starts at the, the screen. It doesn't end. there. <laughs> yeah. Stu, uh, Stu had, a, I, I took a course with Stu a couple of weeks ago and it was very interesting <clears throat> hearing from a scientist. Uh, he, he, he basically said that, you know, in order for a test to be valid, it's got to be reproducible. <clears throat> and, and he has a disagreement with that because unfortunately, if something's reproducible, you have to lower the standards to the lowest common denominator. If, for lack of better terms, a, a, a wet noodle clinician's got to be able to reproduce that test as well. So take your drawer test, right? Now, that's, that, that the drawer test would be reliable, 
but it's not an advanced way of, of assessing the knee. And you know what? There are going to be master clinicians who are going to use different assessment tools that are going to get different results, but they're not going to be as reliable because the wet noodle clinician can't do that test effectively. So it, 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 it breaks down in the spectrum, right? Like there are, there are tests in our, in our SOP that we should all be able to do that are not going to be very advanced. They're really not going to give us all that much information between, besides black and white, uh, positive or negative. And then there are these other tests, which Stu went through in his course, <clears throat> that were much more advanced, but they would be considered unreliable. But they gave us such uh, much more specific feedback on our next approach on, on what we were going to do with this patient. And I think that was the bridge that was sort of that's missed there is that some people thought that the the uh, the screen approach was just too black and white and that Stu's approach was nuanced but they both work together to go from black and white to develop a nuance or to gain a nuance from this this perspective is am I close? right because yeah what if we did this what if we what if we did this? What if we dropped somebody in front of Stu and he started his process and we didn't let, let Stu ask his questions, but Stu got to do all his, you know, uh, probing tests and prodding tests. And at the end of that, we said, Stu, what do you think? And Stu were like, well, you know, they're, they're really stiff um, here and they, they move too much there and they're unstable in this uh, planking situation. And then we turned around and said to the person, do you have low back pain? And they said, no. I said, have you ever had low back pain? And they said, no. And he said, do you have any problems? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I threw the javelin in college. I run triathlons right now and I have no problems at all. Then it would make Stu look bad because out of context, we took somebody who he might've thought was dysfunctional and symptomatic and said, tell us everything that's imperfect. Whereas if Stu had had a chance to ask those questions on the front, Stu would have never probed the guy. He might have right. said, yeah, you know, it might be good to balance that out, but out of context. So if we drop somebody in front of you and don't let you put them through the process, but if you drop somebody in front of me and say, they just got 2080 on their vision, then I'm like, all right, what are the next three visual tests? So if we drop a specific test out of context, we will find a false positive. But if we only Take that Lockman's test. I got guys in the NFL that chose not to have their ACL repaired. Right. And until you do a Lockman's, you can't tell. As a matter of fact, I got guys with great knees that can't do what the guy with the sloppy knee can do. So sometimes the local doesn't represent the global. But if the global's broken, you have a reason to investigate every local influencer. So we all quote Aristotle and, and all feel really warm and fuzzy when we say the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Each of the part has to contribute at a minimum effective level, but the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts. But the alternate is also true. Have you ever put anybody on the table and demonstrated uh, adequate ankle, knee, hip mobility, and adequate spine mobility, and they still can't deep squat? Well, now they hold is less than the sum of its parts. <laughs> yeah. So you got to reconcile that. And the way you reconcile it is please flunk a screen before we do an assessment to keep us from finding everything we're looking for instead of everything we need to see because there's two different things. And, and if you're good, you can't help but to see all the problems 
But what an organized system does is tells you two of those problems are 911, and one of those problems will probably be gone in a month if we address the 911s, and the other three problems are so frequently observed in normals that we're just going to leave them over here on the side as noise and revisit those if the 911 has been handled. That's the prioritization is what happens with a screening and assessment and testing system. Um, and that's, that's what I'm trying to do. And you're absolutely right when you say lowest common denominator. I can't make another Stu McGill, but I can make you a movement screener in a gym anywhere in the world in 24 hours. And I can make you a competent SFMA clinician in about a month if they'll simply do what we said. From that point, they will actually have the feedback loops. If they never got to take another course, they would get to find out quickly what they're doing that actually changes movement and what they're doing that doesn't change movement simply by having both those baselines. No, it's true. It's uh, when you, so you heard Stu's podcast with me. Yeah, no, I, I really, I really liked it. And I tell you that, you know, the, the more that I have a chance to converse with Stu, uh, the more I think if I were a little bit closer to the Canadian border, we'd probably just hang out and we'd probably end up splitting wood and riding four wheelers and deer hunting more than we would talking about back pain. But I'm sure we'd also handle that in a pretty unique way. <laughs> was there anything else you took away from his podcast that, that, was, that resonated? I, I like Stu's uh, rigid adherence to the scientific dissection of a concept, just like the scientific dissection of tissue. And I also like Stu's, um, Stu reminds me a lot of the way my, my father has conducted himself in controversial situations. Um, my dad will still get annoyed, just like Stu does. Nobody likes a stupid question. But if you ask a question with respect, um, and a little bit of, you know, knowledge, I think he'll go out of his way to make sure that he articulates whatever you need to know as best he can. He's, he's that passionate about communicating it. And, uh, every time I hear him talk, it, it's just more evident that he's just trying to help people stay objective in their, in their opinions and their solutions. And if it's practical and it works, then science should support it. You don't, you don't have to do that. You know, you don't, we don't have to get this emotional about the things we disagree on. Absolutely. I think one other element uh, to Stu is he really wants people to put in the work too. Like if you're going to show up, give your 100%, do, do the thing. If you're passionate about this, you need to be passionate about it and, and be on the job. Um, he, he's not a big fan of people just show up to, to events or seminars and are passive about it. Like if you're going to show up, put in some work, ask questions, participate, be there on time, uh, get work done, you know? So he, he, he'll, he'll always tell me he's not the guru type, but he is a leader just on behavior alone. He's a good role model. Well, sometimes the best guru makes you knock at the door for a year before they open it <laughs> simply to realize that if you're only going to knock for five minutes, no seed I plant in your soil is going to grow anyway. <laughs> so yep. there is yep. a, it, you know, it used to be to become a Navy SEAL. They didn't even tell you how you got to buds. You had to figure that out on your own too. And if you made it, <laughs> at, least, yeah. it at least you could deal with what it took to get there. So yeah, I think that that small amount of clinical or scientific grit the same stuff that we know takes people who are average physical specimens 
average physical specimens into the Hall of Fame or the Pro Bowl. That's grit, man. That's tenacity. That's work. That's going to bed late, getting up early, and not doing stupid stuff in between. That's what that is. Yeah, it's what I try to teach the young the young clinicians out there is, you know, that they come out and they're like, okay, so what course do I take? What thing do I take that's going to show me all the answers? It's not it, it's not there. You're going to get a roadmap, but you are not going to get all the answers handed to you. You have to, you know, you have to sleep on this and dream about it and get up early and read more books and study more things. And maybe 10 years down the road, you wake up and you're like, I'm a little bit closer. I'm getting closer every day. No. Nope. Greg Rose and I did that because at the time I went full immersion into dry needling. Greg went full immersion into ART. We both didn't need to go full immersion into ART and we both didn't need to go full immersion into dry needling because we're on the same team. So we're both using the SFMA and now the SFMA is setting a baseline. And now we get to figure out if you got both skills in your toolbox and you got this ankle problem, ART seems to be the best 80-20 play, meaning 80% of the time it's going to work as opposed to dry needling. Whereas if I get on a, uh, you know, hypertonic Terry's major, uh, in half the time I can do twice the work with dry needling. So it's never either or is now if I observe this, this, and this, does this tool work at what I call a competent but non-expert level? Okay. Because he ain't Mike Leahy, and I'm not Ado Zalstra, who taught me dry needling, you know. Uh, I mean, Mike Leahy. I'm, uh, you know, and so we're not experts, but we're competent. And so if we're practicing the method you taught us competently against a baseline we both agree on, like the SFMA, we will find out that my ability to dry needle and his ability to do ART then inform us when a more ART approach is really going to gain more mobility or reset stabilization as opposed to dry needling. So it's never been this battle because once we both realized we both value the same baseline, whatever moves the baseline practiced in a competent way helps us understand. Now, if you don't have competency there, we're not saying the other stuff doesn't work. It, 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 it works fine. But if I had to teach it to the masses and say, protocol-based stuff, if you got this problem, play this. And if you got this problem, play that. Yeah, no problem saying that either. Yeah. How long did it take you guys to, or at least you specifically, to nail down your confidence in, in dry needling in this, in this aspect? Well, Was if you ask my wife, she's, she's still not uh, confident with me dry needling her. She thinks I'm a little bit rough. And I'm like, you know, I've never really worried about how comfortable the treatment is. I'm just looking to change the baseline. So I, I need somebody sometimes to tell me, Grace, soften up a little bit. But I had about a three-year investment before I really thought that I could be a good critic of the method of, say, dry needling or Greg could be a, of ART, meaning we didn't just take a course yeah. and run because I'm not doing dry needling justice if I don't have some investment and he's not doing ART justice. But once we are dealing with the guys that taught us, I mean, if Brett Jones says you did a good deadlift, then you did a good deadlift. If you tell me you did a good deadlift, I'll be like, we'll see. Yeah. Let me go <laughs> ask Brett. If you yeah. Tell me, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If Brett already checked you off on deadlifting, then I know we can advance to single deadlifting or start incorporating some of that hip hinge into your squat and press and swing and stuff like that. But if, we can't even sign off on a deadlift. I'm really not sure the next question you're going to ask me 
is going to get an answer for you because that answer would just serve to dig you a hole deeper in the wrong direction. You know, well, how, how, what should I be doing? My, how much weight should I be doing with my swings? You shouldn't be doing swings. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah, I definitely wanted the, the young listeners to understand that there's a time investment involved with mastering or at least applying techniques. You're not going to take a weekend course and then own it. Well, that's, that's what I see is because, you know, the, the functional movement systems, all the, the, the umbrella of the different clinical tools we've done, people hear our three letters and say, well, what do you think of FMS compared to PRI? Well, I hate to say this, but PRI is a methodology with techniques. And it's very uh, breathing and anatomy-based, and there's some good stuff in there. But I'm not quite sure that they have the best local and global assessment for musculoskeletal health. I can say that. I'm qualified yeah. to say it. I've done the reps. I know what I'm doing. But I think they got some really good techniques and a methodology that deserves to be looked into, especially if that interests you. What I'm saying is, if you're doing what they say, and you can't change a YBT or an FMS or an SFMA, I'm pretty sure you're not doing it right, or that's the only tool in your box. Because I don't think it's bad stuff. I just think if it's presented is, a, is the only thing you're going to do, I honestly think you're not going to be nearly as efficient, as effective as you could be if you filled up your box with a wrench and a hammer, you know, and other stuff. You've got a screwdriver, and, it, and, and every now and then you're going to run into a situation where the screwdriver won't fix things. So when people say FMS versus PRI versus DNS, we're, we're a systematic way to see if you're making a difference. And those things are methodologies that have been distilled down into actions that you need to be competent with. But the one thing that I've always tried to aspire to is the company that makes your, um, your tool shouldn't be the same company that makes the rating system for that tool. Otherwise, every tool we make will be five stars, right? <laughs> every method we do will be five stars. No, if, if we can value the methodology that one of somebody's out there teaching at the, the, the democratic level of movement that I've tried to do, as you can see, we're not a physical therapy tool. We're not an osteopathic tool. We're not a chiropractic tool. We're a movement tool. And if you use the baseline and don't make any assumptions and you change movement in a local and global way, the system will pat you on the back and validate your effort and show you how to numerically scale your intervention against a true tangible global movement change. So what we've tried to do is I wanted to check my own techniques, my own skill. I wanted to check my own my own patients and, and, you know, working in a small town. And after I left Paul Hughes, I moved back to my own town and working in a small market is way, way more honest than working in a large market. Cause you know, if you're in a large market, every person that leaves your clinic, you assume is running with unbelievable biomechanics through a field of daisies, 30 pounds lighter and totally happy for your intervention. They're not, they're just somewhere else letting somebody else rub on them. That's, yes, you know, yep, but, no, that's yep. In a small town, in my hometown, yeah, in my hometown, I'm trying to buy eggs for my wife on the way home, and I meet somebody who I failed. Yep. I meet a kid who just got surgery, and I discharged their knee. I, I, get, I have to face that. And I tell you, I don't like to face that too much. I, no, and no. so, 
Yeah, no. But so if you don't like to face it, either quit going to the grocery store or start <laughs> doing better work. Yeah, get are, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Allow yourself to become good in spite of yourself. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> no small towns are no joke for practicing. I've done that. And uh, it, it brings you have to be very humble and very you got to have a lot of humility and you better be doing some good work. Yep. And it turns out that I was a practicing physical therapist in the same small town where my dad was a very well-known preacher. So uh, I got to bring it or I got to go somewhere else. <laughs> Those are my two choices, you know. He's still there. So that answers that story. Uh, did you hear Craig's podcast too? And you know what? Uh, I, on the flip side, I got to compliment Craig. Number one, the, the, the debate slash Stanford event wouldn't have happened without his persistence and, and organization. And then it wouldn't have ever been produced as a, a visual. Everybody else could watch that couldn't be there if it hadn't been for Larry Draper. So, you know, Craig, Craig and Larry did a lot of work behind the scenes yeah. to make sure me and Stu got there. And, and I'll be honest with you, the, I don't think this has ever been stated publicly, but if you ask Kyle Kiesel over a beer, he'd tell you, uh, I drank a little more than I should the night before. Um, <laughs> because I'll never admit to anybody I'm nervous public speaking. And I wasn't nervous for winning or losing. I was nervous because I didn't want it to turn into a shit show. I did not want it to turn into, you know, my, my tools better than yours and stuff like that. And, and even though I knew in my power, I couldn't let it go that way. I didn't want to offend Stu and put him on the defensive, but I did want him to see I'm not here to sell the movement screen. I am here to deconstruct the logic of local versus global movement and reconcile that. And so the movement screen is the only placeholder I have for a global assessment that has been standardized like an eye chart or a BP cuff. We don't have one. And so I know there's going to be a better one, but we need a template if we're going to improve upon it. So, so what I was trying to do is defend you know, local versus global, because if you tell me I got a herniated disc, how many different signature representations can that have uh, clinically speaking? And so one of the ways I just go into PT school sometimes and, and lecture now, and, and the one thing I, I've done uh, last four or five times I've lectured in PT school is they try to talk to me about honorarium. And I'm like, don't have to pay me a thing. And uh, I'm going to say whatever I want. Yeah. See, if you cut me a check, people think I'm going to help them grind their agenda or we really got to get ourselves looking more functional or buying stuff. Everybody's got an agenda when they ask me to speak. I'm like, I'm going to come tell the truth and do with it what you will. And, you know, you don't you can't tell me what to say because I'm not charging you. <laughs> but right. I'll, I'll ask these young PT students. I said, listen. I got five patients in my clinic and all five had total knees within four days of each other. They're all between 52 and 65. They're all female. And, uh, you know, they all have these issues. Okay. One, their worst movement problem is single leg stance on the side of the, the, the surgery. And they're all, you know, three or four weeks out now. One has pain descending stairs. One can't squat, and that's a big problem because she drives a sports car, <laughs> you know, and then I keep going on and on. One can't touch her toes, but yet she could touch her toes pre-surgically. So, you know, so I said, even though they have the exact same CPT code, surgical diagnosis, and even have the same surgeon, 
each of their movement personalities is responding to long-term arthritis and then an insult, an injury, if you will, because a total knee surgery is an injury until it's rehabilitated, right? So each one of these unique individuals, each one of these five, responded differently, not in the fact that they presented with arthritis and a surgeon decided to replace it with titanium. Their personalities, their lifestyles, their body composition, their their awareness, their proprioception has all been skewed and they're all going in different movement tangents. Some are avoiding the problem. Some keep stirring up the pain. So even though the the surgical diagnosis is the same, the surgical repair is the same, the surgical, you know, outcomes and goals and stuff like that are the same. Each one context. of these people. Yeah, the, all the context. Against a movement baseline. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I'm going to make every one of these people do the same movement I chart to demonstrate the distribution of the way they're handling it. And then I will treat them individually. But you better believe we're going to revisit the common baseline of movement because that's going to make them all better next time they got to walk on concrete for three days at Disney World, which is really more of a goal, you know, for most grandparents than, you know, will I be in a, you know, 5K again. Right. And so, you know, that's what I said. The movement screen helped me individualize the people. It didn't help me put them on a conveyor belt and say these people need more quad strength. Stuff like that. That's not it at all. Each one's getting an assessment, but that assessment has a chance to go in too many wrong directions if we don't hold ourselves back to the 2020 eye chart or the VP cuff. So if the movement screen can play the role of that simple distribution turnstile that puts you where you need to be, then if you were where you need to be, we'd go back to it and we can measure that that screen no longer thinks you need that or says, nope, you need more of it. And that's, I, I can live there. I like that. A personal personal um, uh, 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 anecdote here. When I was in the military and I was a medic, the, the process that we used was triage, right? So if there was a mass casualty or a casualty situation, you had triage nurses, and, and that's where the initial baseline screening and assessment happened. And then they would label each uh, casualty or each patient based on their severity and where they needed to go. And it's and and so when you talk about these things to me, I'm familiar with it because that's how I was trained when I was a medic. Um, but for you, how did this register as a, an important approach? How did this register? Were you a young PT student? Were you just looking around as you were practicing? Was this passed on to you from your mentors? When did you notice that this was an important thing that needed to be addressed in the in the movement based world and in the clinical based world? Uh, uh, Did it come to you in a dream? Were you on a mountaintop and like lightning struck? No, the first time I was flunking out of physical therapy school. Um, Because if you didn't maintain a, at University of Miami, if you didn't maintain a a 3-2 the whole time, uh, if you drop below that one semester, you put on probation, you drop below it for another semester and somebody else gets your seat. So I'm in PT school and one of my professors um, basically calls me in and says, you didn't do too well on your test. And and this test, uh, you know, is going to put you on probation. Um, So we're going to retest right now. But instead, uh, she read me the test instead of administering to me. And I got a 98 on it. 
So uh-huh. on the oral exam, I got a 98. On the written exam, not so much. Uh, and she goes, you got dyslexia, Gray. And I'm like, huh? And I can't even spell that. <laughs> so, and I said, does that go along with my ADHD or is it part of it? You know, and she just chuckled and she said, listen, there's no tutor that's going to help you with this. And we don't have any funds to have somebody sit beside you in class. And it would be unfair at this point to give you an extra 30 minutes on each test. She goes, listen, slow down. Realize that sometimes the first time you scan a sentence, you may see things differently. Take your time. You'll get to it. Dyslexia actually gets worse when you're emotionally stressed, and uh, I'll, I'll do that all the time. Um, but one of my professors, once I got on the other side of, of understanding why I wasn't grasping some things certain ways, she started probing me and asking me questions and things like that. And she goes, okay, so when a runner has fatigue in a 400 meter, is that the inefficiency of their legs or their respiratory system? I'm like, that's a hell of a question. Maybe you're just an inefficient breather. And if you could breathe better, you could handle the lactic acid, you could run a better 400 meter, or maybe your quads are undertrained and producing too much lactic acid. She goes, well, which is it? I'm like, well, I guess it could be either or. How would we reconcile that? We'd have to do a breathing intervention or a breathing test, and we'd have to do a local muscular endurance test to find out the, the limiting factor in your 400 meter run is the way you breathe during that 400 meter run and the limiting factor of another person may be the way they move. And I'm like, Oh God, that's, that's elegant and simple. And if we applied what you just said from the triage process, I should be able to take the question off the table with a screen because one of those things will screen worse than the other. And that's the weakest link that deserves deeper assessment. Tipping my hat to Stu. Yes. Now we do need to go down that rabbit hole. My right. problem is yes. people who go down yes. a rabbit hole because they want to, not because they need to. After triage, you know the people who need surgery, people who have uh, uh, open sucking chest wounds from a gunshot wound, and you know the people who just need a Band-Aid. And you push the Band-Aid people off to a chair on the side, and you start to get to work assessing the ones with the, with the purple triage tag. Wait, no, purple well, meant. check this out. Purple meant no good. So, <laughs> you're not assessing purple. Yeah. Well, here's the funny thing. Your training on the outside of the surgical area, believe it or not, was less involved than the surgeon on the other side of the surgical area, and yet you were deciding who gets surgery and who doesn't. The surgeon doesn't decide who gets surgery. The standard operating procedure does. Yeah, you wouldn't want the surgeon. You've already said this. You wouldn't want the surgeon to decide. You don't want to be the judge of your own tool. Uh, well, that's like asking a plumber if you need new pipes. I can already yeah. tell you the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and that goes for all of us. Yeah. 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 Well, it does. It does. And if we if we can all if we can all own a little bit of that, then it's going to occur. It's never not going to occur. It's human nature. So the the most objective person in the room is the one who knows they're not and creates a systematic way of looking at things that protects them from their own confidence. Holy hell. That was just the whole podcast right there. Someone put that on a damn t-shirt. That's my, that's my mode of operation. Cause you know, uh, you know, I was, I was way, way cockier in my twenties and thirties than I am in my fifties, but I'm way more confident in my fifties. If I, if I step in the ring, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I, I'm going to do okay. But yeah. there's a lot of rings that I, 
I won't step in. I mean, I never, on the Perform Better lecture circuit, I never mentioned kettlebells until I was certified by Pavel Tsetsulin. I never mentioned dry needling until I was level two certified by Kinetocore. You know, I never talked about Shirley, Shirley Sarman or Yonda until I met them and took courses from them. And so there's so many people that are forming opinions about great methodologies and great people. And they're, they're seven people removed from even knowing, you know, meeting them. And I'm like, are you really sure you've grasped everything here? So, you know, kettlebells, you know, I saw them coming a long, uh, a long time before. And I'm like, there's more here than just a dumbbell with a different kind of handle. There's more going on here because there's 300 years of culture and training behind this. And so, you know, simply slowing down and not feeling that just because you're an expert in one thing, we don't want you to comment on other things. You know, I, I never talked about designing personal training programs for weight loss until I worked closely with Alan Cosgrove on the movement screen and then shot a DVD with him. I never talked about the benefit of sustained carries and holds until I did uh, a project with Dan John. And, and so if, if people look back, if I'm commenting on something, um, I put myself through it first. I didn't just read a book on it. And it's not that some people might not be talented enough to do that, but I already told you I got dyslexia. If you want me to understand mud, don't give me a, a, a you know, a document about, you know, mud and, and stuff like that. Just throw me in a mud hole. I'll figure yeah. it out. <laughs> so. Yeah. You have to be contextual with it and feel it and push it around and taste it a little bit, all that for sure. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So, so I didn't mean to get on a tangent, but, I did want to uh, tell you that when I was going through my growing pains, my standard operating procedures, becoming a manual therapist with one of the guys I still hold very dear, Paul Hughes, he was the other person that set me straight. Paul was the one that demanded a standardized process on the front end. We want you to be individualized and creative on the back end. But if you start that way, you're going to be playing favorites right right up there and i've i've always i've seen that occur you know in the clinic and stuff like that people stack their schedule with the kind of patients they want to work with not the kind of patients that need them and you know i've never allowed myself that i'm like i want all the worst patients in the clinic on my schedule the motor vehicle accidents that aren't coming around the workers comp the uh post-surgical infection that's pissed off at the world yeah give me that stuff because my other physical therapists don't need this they need to be practicing the systems and the skills i've taught them on people who appreciate it not people who are you know have been been mistreated by the system and now need some time to reconcile and bitch and moan and go slow that's on me it's a recipe for disaster in our in my profession because a lot of these practitioners practice on an island alone so then they create their own systems and then they practice it alone and they don't have any other feedback except for their own their own so they don't even work in an interdisciplinary environment and not just a recipe for disaster for them per se but for these patients as well well you know that that brings me to a a very sensitive subject that that I'll go ahead and talk about right now in the in the 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 southern part of the states and stuff like that there was a time when you were either part of allopathic medicine or part of chiropractic medicine you had a chiropractor there's a lot of people that didn't have a gp 
Yeah. And if a lot of people in the South had a GP, they were told stay away from chiropractors because, you know, they, they, they use rabbit's foots and handle snakes and they'll suck your crystals. Um, you know, that's, that's just the way it was looked at. So I'm at Paul Hughes's clinic in the Midwest learning to be an expert in manual therapy, taking Ola Grimsby courses and Stanley Paris courses and reading uh, Keltenborn stuff and learning about medical exercise training from the Norwegians and Syriax's selective tissue tension testing and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden I see Craig Liebenson's book and I'm like, I was always told I never had any exposure to chiropractic. I made it all the way through PT school. I've never, never had a chiropractic visit. There wasn't a chiropractor in my town that I had access to. So the only thing we had was a, a physical therapist that ran the hospital and happened to be such a good sports medicine guy that he was grandfathered into the NATA. That's how, that's how old he was. So I just didn't have a good perspective of chiropractic and its, and its roots and stuff like that. I didn't know what osteopathic uh, really was either. And so anyway, I see Craig's book and I look at the systematic way that Craig is trying to test function. And I look over here at Paul Hughes at the systematic way that he's trying to vet local structural integrity. And I'm like, these guys don't disagree. No. Yeah. If, if Craig's functional test says you've got a problem, then nobody other than Paul Hughes would I send down that rabbit hole to find it. But if Paul Hughes tells me my knee's right and Craig Liebenson still sees me having a problem with a lunge, then Paul Hughes might be right that my knee is correct. But have I had changes in my foot, hip, proprioception, or body perspective, then now screw up my lunge. So, so I had to reconcile Craig's approach at function, which to me didn't look anything like the chiropractic that I'd heard of. And well, if you take Craig's skill at the local level, Craig wound up studying, you know, at the Prague School because local treatment, although it is beneficial temporarily, if you don't do something global to hit save on the document, you'll wind up with another broken local part. So the fact that Craig was confident with his hands meant that he could value a perspective that actually had to heal somebody without touching them, which is assigning them a whole body movement task. And, and that's why I think we embrace so many of the things coming out of the Prague school and people get enthusiastic about DNS. It's great until you got a locked up ankle or your T-spine stuck. And if the, if the stuff doesn't loosen that up or make that available, we're doing manual therapy, not for a biomechanical reason. We're doing it for sensory input. Yes. I've never been an advocate of range of motion simply so the biomechanist in the room would be satisfied. I want to satisfy Yonda. I want him to say, yes, you have given that person more information in their thoracic spine. Now let's see what they do with it. Oh, I love that. And I actually had an opportunity to, to take a course from Yonda. And I opened a textbook chapter where we had gone through the FMS in the SFMA. It was the first time I ever published it. And it was basically um, uh, um, posture patterns and pain or something like that in one of Mike Boyd's book where the, the SFMA was very first published by me and Kyle Kiesel. And uh, I said, this is what we're trying to do to create that movement baseline so we can vet your body of work and others. Because I think we can dynamically see the lower cross syndrome and the uh, upper cross syndrome in movement ways as well as static ways 
And I honestly think that your observation, even though, you know, people will clinically say, well, this, this is that and that's that. No, it's an elegant observation. It is a signature pattern of an overtrained or highly sedentary person. It's funny how the prime movers shorten up and the stabilizers go to sleep, whether you overtrain them or don't do crap. Those, that's the end result. Do nothing or do too much, and you'll end up looking the same way, upper and lower cross syndrome. <laughs> so yeah. it's an elegant observation. I simply tried to prove the same statement with movement testing because I realized that static postural testing can hide, hide problems um, a, a little bit. But reading Craig's book at the exact same time that I'm going through Paul Hughes, and Paul didn't appreciate that book like, like I think he might now because the stigma of chiropractic against physical therapy was just too much for him to get over. Yeah. Right. But I'm sitting there becoming a fan of Craig Liebenson, you know, by candlelight because didn't want, you know, you can't read that guy's book. That's the other team. But that's where, <laughs> no, that's just, I said, you know, Craig is, I can't tell, this guy is like a strength coach who gets neurology. Yeah. That's, that's what that's like. And so, it doesn't mean he turned his back on manual therapy, localized treatment. He's just saying on the other side of that, what are you going to do? Just keep treating that knee until you get a Christmas card for the next 10 years from this person. I don't want that kind of relationship with my patients. He's a master of you game. Of I want a graduate. Yeah. I want a graduation relationship with my yeah. patients. Not a, not a 20 year mentorship. I don't, I don't want that kind of relationship. That's, that's for family and friends. Those practices <laughs> in Santa Monica, there's so much traffic there. You can't, there's not a whole lot of repeat visit opportunities. <laughs> you got to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that he had touched on in his podcast that has stuck with me a long time now is he mentioned this term. I don't know if he created it or not, but it was rehab purgatory. And he said, you know, one of the problems in your time when you were trained to, to be distrustful of Kairos was it was like a manual therapy purgatory, right? Come back in and keep getting the manipulation, keep getting adjusted. And it seems like to some degree we've evolved into now this rehab purgatory. Keep coming back and getting some sort of corrective exercise. Keep coming back. We'll, we'll invent the new exercise. There isn't a graduation. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and I, didn't, I didn't feel honorable about that. And I, I didn't blame the profession or anything. I came across a quote one day. Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. So I can sit here and bitch about it too or try to do something about it. And I realized the minute you try to do something about it, you're going to get way more arrows in your back than you are pats on your back, but psh, they don't hurt that bad. They're not really that big of arrows, you know? No, they're not. They're not. Um, you know, that was one thing that I wanted to touch on, um, you know, because you have, especially in social media, taken some, some arrows for being quote unquote, a guru. Stu has, well, shit, I have too, a little bit. I mean, just, just having an opinion is going to put a target on your back. Um, but, but how did, how do you manage that? Like, how did you, obviously it came out of, it, it can come out of nowhere, but then when it happens, you just got to keep on working, right? You know what? You, you lower your head. If, if somebody, all right, here's where I get pissed off. You got a, you got a blog and you don't like what I said. And, and, you know, cause, cause it, you know, it, it offends the way your, your CrossFit box or your clinic functions. I, I really, I really don't care. It's okay. It's not personal. I'm making, I'm making professional statements about professional conduct. And if that wrongs you personally, everything I'm saying is part of Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people. Everything I'm saying is part of systematic dissection of a concept. So if honesty hurts, 
then that's, that's a different problem. And there's a lot of people that have a personal agenda they, they, they bring to work. So the first thing I say is if I can separate that, then I owe the personal attitude nothing. I owe it nothing. I owe it no explanation because no explanation will make it go away. This is a problem with, with this pro person's going to have a lot more controversy than just me. But I tell you where, when I've got somebody that does research, for a living and tries to get it published in a referee journal and they will research the FMS, the movement screen, and not one of the GAs that collected the data for them has gone through our certification process. The certification process is not to pay for my kid's college. It's to give me an opportunity to test you on the information in the manual and it's an open book test. And if you can't regurgitate that information, I'm pretty sure you're gonna do CPR or an FMS incorrectly. So CPR um, is, is a very low level certification if you think about it and so is the FMS. But if you're gonna do research on the FMS and nobody who's doing the, re all they've ever done is read the book, right? I'm yeah. sorry. How come you can't get CPR certified online? Because I want to see you do chest compressions. I just got to see you move. Not just tell me that it's 15 and 2 or 1 and 5 or whatever the ratio is. I want to see you do it. Well, the way we're trying to do it with the FMS is most of the time we try to see you do it, but we can actually find great reliability in people who pass the online certification and the ones who don't. So you're going to go out and do research on a new tool that you have no experience with, but you hear people talking about it. So because you're a researcher, it's your job to defend knowledge from people who are less smart than you because we can't let you have access to knowledge that we can't ingest. So then they go research the movement screen and either make a false statement like it is not a performance predictor. Never said that. It's a participation predictor. <laughs> if, <laughs> yeah. if you score low enough on the movement screen, you're just not simply, you're not going to be here later on. And I'm not saying this because you're going to get an injury. We did a thousand person study at Quantico um, Marine Officer Candidate School. Low movement screens, whether they're for physical reasons, uh, are, are predictive of dropping out whether it's for physical reasons or non-physical reasons. So if your body, if your brain writes a check, your body can't cash, you're yeah. going to do one of two things, quit or fail. That's it. Yeah, fail means, yeah, fail means you get hurt before you quit and quit means you, you stop before you get hurt. It's just not a nervous system that's used to expressing at the level required to be, to express, to be an officer. Right. So, so basically it's this, it's like, you know, if, if, I, if I had produced the FMS 150 years ago, it would have been unnecessary because anybody showing up at a Turner style gym would say, what do you mean? People in the future can't squat. They can't lunge. They don't have shoulder mobility. They can't lay on their back and lift a leg 75 degrees in the air without moving the other one. I would not have to explain the FMS to Bruce Lee. And I barely had to explain it to Dan Inosanto, his number one student. I don't have to explain the movement screen to people who really embrace yoga. Yeah. I don't have to explain the movement screen to rock climbers. They're like, oh, I'd hate to be on a belay with somebody <laughs> that moved like that. So people who really move look at the FMA, FMS is, well, yeah, I, I would imagine that you should do that. Now people are arguing for, I, I even heard an NBA strength coach say, well, we don't deep squat in the NBA. What do you need a deep squat for in a movement screen? Okay. 
And I'm like, it's very predictable of the way your lumbopelvic rhythm, your ankle and your body works. I'm not saying that you got to have a squat to be a good basketball player. I'm saying if you will look back at the ones who can squat, you're just going to have less movement issues. That's, that's, that's simply it. Greg Rose proved a deep squat is a great predictor. And, and I'm not saying so deep that Stu would cringe. I'm just saying get your ass a little bit below your knee and get your ass back out of there. Don't wince or cave or lose your back in the process. I think you're going to also have equally good hip rotation because it's a ball and socket joint on both sides. So whether we're rotating, flexing, or extending, it is what it is. And so if you have a lot of difficulty squatting down, just body weight, just keeping your back spared, getting through your hips and getting back up, there are going to be other problems. It's simply predictive. And the second thing is most of our movement screen extremes are actually designed to be provocations. Because if anything in the movement screen hurts you, I think you're clinically justified to make a referral because there's probably a long batch of stories that the person's getting ready to tell you about that movement pattern that they failed to tell you on the history. So the top tier of the SFMA or the FMS is an extension of Stu's history, but instead of being a static history of you narrating what's happened to you, now I'm going to ask your body, do the signs that you're showing me in movement correlate with the symptoms that this person is described? Because if your symptoms are through the roof, and your clinical signs are down, then we got a completely different problem. And if you're um, having no symptoms and all this dysfunction, you're probably not being honest with me. So it, the only place that we don't use predictive signs is orthopedic medicine. Everywhere else, we look for signs before we get the symptoms. Look at cancer, diabetes, anything we're doing right now that we're getting better with, it's early intervention and early detection. It's not the fact that we're that much better at treating it, but too much so we reverse the musculoskeletal conversation into the painful part. And as Greg Rose says, that's, uh, that's the source of pain. It ain't the cause of pain until you prove it's the cause of pain. So the, the patient can point at the source of pain, but you must prove through the clinical reliable signs that it, it is either the or not the source of pain. And if you find out it's not the source of pain, that's what everybody's scared of. Their knee hurts, but you're finding problems in their hip. Well, yeah. ask their permission to do a quick intervention on the mobility or stability problem you see in their hip. And then ask them to repeat the thing that provoked their knee. You're either going to be able to measure a difference, whether they feel it or not, or they're going to be able to feel a difference whether you measure it or not. But most of the time, it's both. Okay? And I'm not always right. Sometimes we'll get that hip moving a lot better. The knee's still symptomatic. If it's, if it's highly inflamed, I would expect it. If it's not highly inflamed, um, then I'm going to say, you know what? we got to keep going. But reconciling their dysfunctional signs with their subjective symptoms, not their, not their um, the provocation ones are where we do it. We know what movements provoke you. Now, what's the low-hanging fruit that we can fiddle with and then revisit the provocation before we go right into the provocation sign and try to modulate that? And this is the way to re reconcile local and global uh, approaches as well, right? No, it, it, it helps. And I think, I think that, that that language has emerged because I find that 
many people, when we talk about it that way, they're like, oh, I get it. You're just saying don't do this before this. You're not saying do this and never do that. You're saying there is a sequence. And I think I'm, I'm safe in saying the sequence of a musculoskeletal exam must be global before it's local. Because, because the minute you start probing locally, you will change global movement. But if you simply ask them to go through a few movements, just like they did when they got undressed or got out of the car or walked into the clinic, then that's all I'm asking. And I'm going to organize those movements in a way where there can be reliably administered post-treatment so I can get feedback. And I'm not looking to be right every time. I know I'm not. I'm looking to get clear feedback and reconcile the way you're moving with the way you feel. And so, you know, some people are, you know, uh, they're, they're not even close. To, to realizing how limited they are. And some people think they're, they're normal. And one of, the, one of the newer things we're doing at FMS is saying, listen, I don't necessarily think that poor movement is a predictor of injury if you're aware you have poor movement. I know a lot of NBA players that are nines on the FMS. They do have some injuries, but they're still playing. But I think they're so well in tune with their limitations and so good at what they can do that they don't have to go into any of those places to be great. So they know how to avoid them. I work in the NFL. I don't see 21s on the movement screen. Yeah, but I see any guys baseball who, pitcher, any baseball pitcher, period, and they're scoring pretty yeah. And here's, here's the brilliant thing. I took all the it FMS. Classic, uh, yeah, yeah it, I took all the FMS positions and just turned them into silhouettes, right? Laying on your back, you can see a leg raise, you can see a squat. I'll ask people, look at these silhouettes. I'll ask them three questions. Can you do this move that well? Yes or no? Okay. If you did this move, whether you could do it or not, would it hurt? Yes or no? Number three, should somebody your gender and age be able to do this move this well, or is that ambitious to expect? And what I got in those three questions is, can you recognize what you can and can't do? Can you already see provocation by movement before it happens? And do you think you're above or below average, right? Because I'm asking the average. Now, you go through a movement screen or an SFMA or whatever one we do. Now, I've got your confidence reality ratio gauged because I know what you think about movement. And now I know how you move. And there's three distributions of that scenario. If I give you a chance to call the shot before you take it. And that is your confidence or reality line up pretty well. You're a good uh, objective um, analyst of your own movement. You're self-aware, if you will. Now that we got another person, okay? Oh, I'm going to do great. I'm going to do great. Uh, uh, this is awesome. Nothing hurts. I'm going to do great. No, they didn't. Now, their confidence and reality don't match well at all. This person is going to put themselves at unnecessary risk because they think they can do things that their friends can do, but their friends are very self-aware or move pretty good, you know, and what's the other scenario? You don't think you're going to do well and you do just fine. What about that person? They'll never challenge themselves so they can never get much better, even though they're, they're undershooting. So they'll never, they'll never be up on that ragged edge of where we start to get better. That 4%, you know, uh, ratio of let's do something we never did before. If you go much above that, you're going to blow up. 
But if you're competent at a level and you take about a 4% bite out of your next goal, you're usually going to get it. And that's why we still see guys like Tony Hawk and um, um, oh, uh, Laird Hamilton still skateboarding and surfing to this day. They, they fall, they, they do stuff all the time, but they're extremely self-aware of, of what they do and they never bite off more than they can chew. So, you know, we don't just do movement screens. We, we really ask people, how do you think you move? And all of a sudden, now that we got a movement screen, I can say, how do you think you see? How do you think your blood pressure is? And we could find that the people who are the most risky aren't aware that they're hypertensive and do things that if they knew they were hypertensive, they probably would agree they shouldn't do. So that's been the missing link in movement all along. It's your awareness of your abilities is probably a bigger predictor than your freaking ankle mobility. But Stu, brings it in as a, gonna, Stu will bring it up as type A versus type B, just assessing somebody's personality types. It's, it's the same, same reasons. It's the same finish line. It's just a different way of talking about it, and they're both completely appropriate. They, they are. They are. And, you know, what, what is, what's the question Stu likes? Do you feel you're, you're, you're more quick or more strong? That, that says a lot if you, if you let somebody do it. But then do the test to prove if they're right or not. Because they're not always right. And it's when you prove they're not right, I don't think you can have a therapeutic intervention until you figure some other way to show them um, that they move poorly. So I've always been the advocate at SFMA and FMS courses. Do not tell someone in FMS speak how they scored. Oh, you got a one on the leg race. Yeah. Don't even announce that. Just simply say, okay, the way you move in your top tier SFMA, or the way you move in your FMS makes me want to ask your body another question. Would you mind if I ask your body another question? I'm going to put you in this little drill, this little exercise, and see what's happening. And that drill or exercise is going to follow something as simple as ABCs. You ready for this? It's awareness, breathing, and control. What comes after control? D. That's called development. So if you're not aware of the problem, then I must put you in a movement situation where you realize now the reason you can't touch your toes has nothing to do with your tight low back. It's the fact that your hips are making your low back do too much and your low back is tired of doing too much. So every time you go for your toes, your back's going to hurt, but not because it's tight, because it's tired. So, so what we do is we go through the awareness drill. And I've always told people the first corrective exercise you offer someone Say after you do some manual therapy, or if you're in training, you just say, hey, we got to fix your squat before we train your squat. The first corrective exercise you offer someone, don't you dare friggin' walk away because it's not an exercise. It's an experience. It's an experience that you're both going to go through. And you're not going to coach them. It sh you should have already scaled the activity so very little coaching needs to be done. They're going to confront their weakest mobility or stability link, but in a posture and a pattern that is scaled to their ability. Now, they're getting ready to experience the limitation you already know they have, but they didn't agree with you. So they're getting ready to feel what you were getting ready to tell them. And they will always trust their feelings more than your information. So I use the first pass at corrective exercise to be like, oh, yeah, you're right. I really can't balance on my left. Oh, yeah, you're right. It is my hips that are tight. My back didn't feel tight in that position at all. Good. Awareness. Now. We're going to take something like a stretch or one of our bretzel stretches, and now we're going to confront your breathing, okay? This ain't yoga class, but 
if we do a breathing screen on you and we find out that your breathing is a big component of your problem, then I'm going to put you in a few positions and say, when going into that stretch or going into that tall kneeling turn, did you feel your breath change? Because believe it or not, if I were watching you on video, you dump your breath before you dump your movement. Most people are already altering their breathing before the valgus collapse or lumbar flexion is. So, yeah. And that's their body just basically hyperventilating or having anxiety about something you already know you can't do. So you need to be there in that experience because on the other side of that corrective intervention is an opportunity to revisit the baseline, whether it's a provocation baseline or a, a baseline like the Y balance test or the motor control screen or just single leg stance for 10 seconds. And you come out of the end of that. Now we have tangible proof that you are different than you were five minutes ago. And now you felt that it's not your low back keeping you from having better balance or better flexibility. It was actually your tight hips. But your tight hips are never going to be challenged because they've been tight for so long that it's just easier to take it from your back. So there's an awareness in breathing. When I put you through control, you've seen the toe touch progression change people's toe touch, right? Yeah. That's just a control drill. And most people who touch their toes at the end of that drill would not forecast that they would have been able to do that 40 seconds ago because you actually didn't allow them to touch their toes in their normal path. You put them on their toes up or their heels up. You completely screwed up their platform, but you made them get there anyway. And that put them back on the good path. So my whole point is there is no exercise intervention for me until we have a, an experience. And that experience says, I found the problem. I need you to feel the problem. We're going to confront the problem. I'm here with you every step of the way. I may tell you, don't push any further if you can't breathe through it. But ultimately, we're going to end up standing up. I'm going to do something just stressful enough to change you, but not stressful enough to stress you out. And then we're going to remeasure. And if I make a change in your movement and you feel that difference, and you choose not to comply with that program, you can find another friggin' therapist. Because I don't think I can help. If I take you through an experience that showed that we can make a tangible change with very little effort and very little expense, and you can't figure out a way to continue performing that behavior until I tell you not to, then I've already showed you, here's the path to changing your movement. You've seen it, you've experienced it, and I answered your questions. If you're not compliant with that, it's not time for you. Yeah, there's nothing else you can do. The student is not, but you know what in in i've been practicing as a physical therapist since uh 1990 i don't think i've ever fired anybody i've threatened to fire a few people and and, and some of them were pro bowlers and some of them were just belligerent people that had a workman's comp claim but yeah. once they realized by that statement i'm your advocate just like stu i'm your advocate for movement i'm going to help you not sacrifice your movement to get this settlement or finish this career, which, whichever it is, don't sacrifice your movement to get there. It's the one thing you're going to wish you had back one day. So, so going through that first experience, not walking away because, you know, I came out of PT school, anybody who didn't really understand backs would just hand the patient the McKinsey book or the McKinsey exercises and walk <laughs> away thinking they had done something. I'm like, they're still doing that. They're still doing I know. That. And I'm like, I'm like, how do you feel having eight years of higher education and you're no better than a vending machine? Because if I walk up and hit the low back pain button, it's just going to spit out McKinsey. <laughs> how are you any different than a freaking vending machine with eight years of education? 
Yep. If your response to the request of low back pain is the same every time, then you don't, you are not doing any higher level processing of the information. You're simply not. The irony here is that uh, the pain science folks, I'm using air quotes when I say pain science, you know, they get on stew, they get on the FMS that it's so biomechanical. It's not the biopsychosocial approach. Everything that you just laid out here and everything that Stu laid out in his podcast as well and everywhere else, he's defended himself very nicely, is a biopsychosocial approach to dealing with people's movement dysfunctions and pain, making them aware of it, having them make the choice to help themselves. Uh, Sometimes the criticisms, they just blow my mind, you know? Like it's there. You guys just have to have conversations with each other and you'll understand, not, not you specifically, but the people of the world who want to be critics just have conversations and like you said, study the material and you will come to an understanding. Well, you know what? I, I have not had a lot of formal training in pain science other than the same kind of training we all get as clinicians and then the experience we get. So, so, so there's probably some people that... huh? So you're not going to comment? No, no, I, I'm getting ready to comment, but and I'll make a statement that I don't think anybody can can really come back on. My pursuit of movement has helped me understand pain science without having the academic benefit of you know getting somebody to pay for my PhD while I do it. Right. However, if you're a honest manual therapist, if you have both local and global skills with movement, and you do this long enough you will arrive at the exact same statements about pain and pain science I did. If you dedicate yourself to pain science for 30 years, you will not be a good manual therapist. Ding, 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 ding. Yes. There you go. So pain science without a competent manual therapy intervention process that has both local and global skills makes you think that everybody who's not getting better needs pain management. And that's why we got a freaking opioid epidemic. I'll go even further because I'm controversial. I'll say some people might be getting a little too much into pain science because they weren't and aren't good manual therapists. You know what? I I think that's obvious. I think it's obvious because you know what? In pain science, it's really easy to say, well, I just can't help you because you won't help yourself. In manual therapy, it ain't about you anymore. This, I'm going to get you better in spite of your friggin' self. <laughs> and then, and then I'll show you how I did it so I can convert that to something that's more independent and sustainable. One more dark you know? specter in the room, and that is Feldenkrais. No one wants to talk about Feldenkrais except for how awesome it is, but every time I ask a patient, they have no idea. The clinicians that are borrowing Feldenkrais but not actually studying it, that's an issue for me personally. Uh, but then again, if anyone who, who is a certified Feldenkrais practitioner uh, out there listening, hey, man, taking four years to learn that is not necessary. Can we switch that up a bit? But what, it, what do you have to say about Feldenkrais? Because you mentioned it to me. Yep. Uh, number one, um, I, I think if we look at where Feldenkrais came from, it came from somebody who's smart enough to be a physicist who's not getting adequate rehabilitation. So he said, I will explore my movement boundaries on my own. Mm-hmm. And those explorations, in, in my opinion, are healthy explorations, but not clinically efficient. We will never have a healthcare model that will be able to afford that process. Right. That's not me saying that process isn't valuable. I think it's, it's like, you know what I think Feldenkrais, it's like movement meditation. Becoming a competent meditator 
is something that takes a few years of practice. But I think most people who've done it don't regret the investment. And that's where I think people are about Feldenkrais. I think if you have, if you have helped yourself through Feldenkrais, then, then I think you actually have an awareness and understanding that can never be taken away from you. But if you've got a valid medical problem that's not being medically addressed, I think Feldenkrais can keep you higher functioning until you meet a better clinician. But I think that, that Feldenkrais has been embraced more so by non-clinicians, and they're actually getting success simply because they're listening to their patients and they're not rushing uh, to discharge them before insurance quits paying. They're simply invested in these problems. And the only, only thing is, I'm not quite sure the relationship needs to last that long. It's not like you're getting a black belt, right? right? I mean, right. so, so I, can, I can only criticize Feldenkrais for not having an objective baseline globally and locally, but I can also commend them because when somebody who practices Feldenkrais, whether they're a clinician or not, helps you get better and you spent, you know, years in rehab and didn't, I'm not quite sure we can be mad about that. If we had, if we had done a better job in healthcare, Feldenkrais would, would basically be one of those things that could easily be a self-help journey we did. I don't know if you need to be instructed through that, but I've met a lot of Feldenkrais instructors and sometimes I think they got more intuition about movement. And then when I start saying, man, I'd love to screen these people before and after, they think I'm trying to disprove their method. I'm oh. not. I'm trying to hold you up and say, shit, you just changed more than the, you know, than the, the two certified guys in the room, you know, than, yeah. than the two people who should be more clinically uh, to train us. So when, when, when I get, you know, uh, with a good yoga instructor or martial arts or Pilates instructor or Feldenkrais instructor that doesn't have a clinical background, I'm like, no, you're changing movement probably more so than the, than the other scenario. And I see both Feldenkrais and Pilates clinicians migrate to these things only when they're unsuccessful with the tools they have because clinical tools should be quicker and efficient because we're not supposed to dilly dally when, when your quality of life is compromised and we're definitely not supposed to profit from that longer than, than we should, you know? So that's true. That's really good. Uh, before we go, my last two questions mm -hmm. to you and you can paste them all out just how you'd like. Um, the, the stage is yours for the, for the end here is what did, we're going to go back to Stanford and I'm going to ask you, what did you take away from it? What did you learn and how has it changed you? And then uh, that leads into the next question, which is what's next. Ooh, okay. Um, I took away from Stanford. If, if you are standing up for what you believe in and a worthy opponent is standing up for what, you, what they believe in, then if you simply are patient and keep emotions at bay, you'll find out that you have way more in common than you have different. And I think I knew that going in, but Stu and Craig couldn't approve that any better. You know, I mean, Craig, I think half the people in the room didn't need Craig's synopsis, but I think the other half in the room still might've thought there was some controversy. And, and, and Craig's synopsis says, don't run from the controversy, embrace it. I think we reconciled more things at Stanford than we didn't. I think there was some things at Stanford that probably didn't get reconciled because people still 
talking that way, but I think we reconciled way more than we didn't in that, in that event, in that meeting. And, you know, I walked away with, with two guys that, that I already professionally respected, but, but I walked away with, I think friends I could call on, you know, and that's cool. It's very cool. Um, next, what, what, what's on the horizon? Um, what's on the horizon? Well, when you're, looked, in, the lab, when you're uh, in the beat laboratory, what, what, what beats are you working on? <laughs> well, what, uh, what happened uh, shortly after Stanford, and I, I didn't really tell anybody this, but I was, I've been suffering for a long time with some, some cervical stuff that was my own fault because I could have, I should have probably had a cervical fusion six years before I did. So I wound up with a two level cervical fusion. So, you know, um, uh, I got uh, five, six, six, seven uh, fused with bone and a titanium plate. I lost 60% of the strength in both my upper extremities um, on a grip strength dynamometer and with pressing and pulling in and, and it. And to this day, I have a significant, significant amount of residual hand pain and some neural tension stuff that I think I'm chipping away at, but it took me, it took me out of clinic and forced me to, to, you know, not be distracted by all the opportunities I have as a clinician and say, let's go back and look at the SFMA, the FMS, the YBT, what's missing, what can we do better? And so I basically raised the hood on a car that most people thought was running pretty good and just started dismantling everything um, and realized that people were looking to us for a performance model. So we looked at, um, and this is a really cool question I asked myself, if you drop me off in a country or a region of a country that had no concept of exercise, right? Freaking lumberjacks, agrarian culture, hunter-gatherer, I don't care. You dropped me off in a culture that had no concept of exercise other than we got to work to survive. How would I test fitness in that group? Right? Because I can't say, well, we're going to do deadlift for strength. You don't know what a deadlift is. So the lack of technical aspect you have in a deadlift, because people in real cultures don't lift shit with handles. They lift shit that doesn't have handles. That's yeah. different. So how would I test? If I got, because I can do a movement screen in Rwanda and I can do a movement screen uh, in my own zip code. And Rob Butler, a biomechanist out of Duke, has actually done that. And the thing we find out is kids with formal PE in the US actually have worse movement screens than kids in Rwanda who don't get shoes uh, till they're about 10 if their parents are well off. <laughs> but yet they don't have movement problems. They may have nutritional problems, but they don't have movement problems yet because they move. Um, but if I were to develop a battery of fitness tests, it wouldn't look like the CrossFit games. Right. It would be run, jump, carry, and climb. The natural energies that you express by the time you're three years old. Nobody ever taught you how to run. You lean forward and walk faster, and all of a sudden you ran. When you climbed, that was just coming off your crawling platform. And believe it or not, as a baby, as a child, as a toddler, as an adolescent, you carried way more than you lifted, meaning you would lift things of value and you'd carry them around and you would basically throw off your center, center of mass over your base of support and you would learn to have postural integrity under control. If you had power, you didn't get it by jumping on shit. You got your power by jumping off jumping shit. Off. Kids yep. climb on the coffee table and jump off therefore doing the eccentric engaging gravity 
an acceleration in reverse so that I know just how hard to jump if I ever decided to jump on top of this table. And the last one is energy storing. Can I recycle the power that I'm able to generate and dampen into the other leg using my fascial system and all the natural springs in my body if I just keep my musculoskeletal alignment and my muscular tension right, my fascial system will actually give me a sustainable return in energy, energy that is very low caloric expenditure. Bouncing off your fascia takes hardly any calories at all. And if, and if you've ever seen a wild animal move through nature, they're bouncing off their fascia because they don't quite know where the next acorn's coming from. So they're totally efficient way to move. So run, jump, carry, climb. If we've got these things on top of good movement, then I will know exactly which energy system is bad on you. Do you have independent limb balance competency like the YBT in the upper lower body would do? Because that's crawling and climbing. Can you do a farmer's carry with 75% of your body weight? Um, because that's, believe it or not, the tipping point where we literally find out, are you stronger than you are quick or are you quicker than you are strong? Uh, standardized standing long jump uh, can be dissected into let's jump with and without upper body contribution and let's jump off one leg and land on two, thus showing a upper, lower, right, left uh, dissection of your fundamental power. Um, and then lastly, we'll do energy storing. If you were to jump off one foot as a single rep and then did a triple rep, do you gain something by bouncing off your own? And if you don't, you don't know how to energy store, even though you might have good power. So I went into this, this sort of more um, physical dissection of energy system competency. And it doesn't mean we wouldn't do additional tests if you're in baseball or World Cup soccer, but it means if I see postural integrity in you that's 30% less than everybody else on your team who's starting, then I will say this has nothing to do with soccer, but your postural stability under control is far less than everyone else's. And I'm not quite so sure why theirs is so high, but I think the outlier is you, not them. So even though, you know, and I say the same to marathoners, the, sta the, the standing long jump of marathoners that are beating you are body height plus 10%, you're 80%. So I know marathon is not a power sport, but all the people beating your ass in this endurance sport have more power than you. So I'm not trying to announce that, that this is a power sport. I'm like, you don't even have average power wondering why you're not winning your marathons. It might not be an endurance thing. So it's a really neat democratic way to, to dissect physical ability beyond movement ability or physical capacity or work capacity. So we did that. And then I went back and looked at all our corrective exercises and said, oh my gosh, if I apply this ABC, this awareness, breathing and control, that's the difference in what my instructors are doing and some of the things that people who think they're doing a corrective are doing. We're doing the same move, but it's the way we progress you through that move the questions we ask and the observations we make that really create the teaching moments, whether they be conscious or subconscious, that, that help you change yourself. So I, I dissected two things. I, I went back into our corrective exercise and dissected that and said, I think we can get there quicker. Um, and then I looked at strength conditioning and said, I think we need a little bit more of a linchpin between the movement screen and you know, uh, hand cleans. I think, I think we could have one more step 
that would really inform you as to should I be training this energy system against that. And so I think that when we get our data in, we're going to have both uh, gender and age appropriate levels of fitness that you could achieve, but we can also run these independent pace baselines on MLB, NHL, Navy SEALs, and NFL players because you might be surprised at what they do in a physical task that's not specific to their skill. And that's a very, very good way to approach it, especially if we're going to design things in the weight room or design physical things that aren't necessarily skill drills, but we think you've got a physical capacity issue. Because a lot of people hit a 400-pound squat, and what's the next goal? Well, I guess we'll go for five. There's right. no data to say that, you know, um, Ray Lewis would have been a better linebacker if we'd added 100 pounds to his squat. I don't think his squat had anything to do with it. I think his squat can be low enough to be concerned, right? If he can't squat 100 pounds, we got a, we got a different problem. So I, I've tried to approach everything we've ever done from a non-failure strategy, meaning I'm not saying how good you got to be. I'm going to tell you how bad you can be and still not abnormal. I'm going to tell you how, how much your movement screen can suck before it's a problem. This is how much your carry can suck before we can measure a problem. This is how much your balance can suck before we measure a problem. This is how much your flexibility, your joint range of motion, your grip strength can suck before we worry about it. That's a vital sign, not a performance issue. Absolutely. Especially in, in these performance issues like special forces and all the way back to patient uh, number one example, grandma at Disney World. That's it. That's it. But it's, it's, it's not my job to put you on my agenda. It's my job to find your weakest link. If it is physical, connect your brain to that and then make you independent and sustainable as quick as I can. If it takes a year, no apologies. If it takes a week, no apologies. I'm going as quick as my abilities will let me go, but don't think I'm not always trying to go faster for you. You know, <laughs> what an amazing time to be alive, man. This is exciting. This is awesome. I'm excited. I got no, goosebumps. No, it's good, man. And, and sometimes I think we, we professionals need to unplug our stuff from the professional chatter and just go back and say, okay, what are your principles? What do you, what do you believe? That after I wrote the movement book, I really uh, started listening to um, Simon Sinek. Sinek, uh, uh, start with why, why yeah. leaders eat last. And I distilled all the FMS principles down to three. Move well, move often. That's number one. There's got to be a qualitative mark before we start discussing quantities. There has to be a qualitative mark. Um, number two, protect before you correct, correct before you develop. That means I've got to announce the things that will make you worse before I try to employ the things that could make you better. I simply do. Remove the negative is always a good place to start, whether you're a strength coach or a physical therapist or a chiropractor. And the last is, if that shit's working for you, systematize it. Meaning, you know, if well before often works and protect before correct and correct before develop works for you, systematize as much as you can and leave the rest to individual analysis. And so those are our three principles. And, and I, no matter how much we get in the weeds, I go back. Do we have a qualitative standard before we have a quantitative standard? Are we announcing the things we should remove before we are trying to add something? You know, are we correcting the qualitative thing before we develop the quantitative thing? And it's, and it's, put, me, it's put me on point. And it's simply, it's simply not going to more courses. I've, I've done that. I've read a lot of books. But just like you and I have talked about, um, and, and 
you've actually uh, done a little bit of professional work from a duck blind, and I'm actually uh, sitting in a deer stand right now. It just happens to be 12 by 12, and it's a sniper tower office where I have a dry erase board. And getting out here and unplugging from the from the clinical drama and you know all the people who are you know publishing or perishing or something like that, and just simply thinking about your body of work and where you can improve it is a healthy drill. It's a very healthy drill. And, and sometimes the mirror is a hard thing to look in. <laughs> so. Yeah, totally. I even in our, in this Facebook group, the forward thinking chiropractic Alliance, which there's, we're getting close to 7,000 members. Um, on Fridays, I asked them to tell me what's good in their lives, the members, and we don't want any shop talk. And it's just an exercise in gratitude. And that gratitude can um, generate more reflection and then more progression in my opinion. Um, so I always try to push people towards gratitude, especially in these, these areas where you put so much energy into taking care of people, you've got to unplug and then you've got to reassess where you're coming from and why you're doing it and remind yourself all the time. No, that's exactly it. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you my gratitude real quick. Uh, yesterday, my wife and I went to the local elementary school where for the last two years we've been volunteering. Um, Gray Cook is a PE teacher every Thursday during the school year for the last two years. <laughs> That's awesome. I don't get paid. I don't get paid. Danielle, my wife, is a certified kettlebell instructor, way better athlete than me. We show up. I got preschool through eighth grade in a small school in our community that's a, a, a private school, and it's mostly run by teachers that could easily retire and probably have retired from the public school system, some working for minimum wage simply to have that kind of school here. And it's a really good school. It's a community-based school, and I love it. And they got a gymnasium, but they don't have a PE teacher. As a matter of fact, other than the janitor, I'm the only male on campus sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, Danielle and I showed up, and I had one central theme. And if you want to listen more about it, I did a, a podcast with Kelly and Juliet Starrett from Mobility Wad um, on some of those interventions because they're very passionate about kids too. Right. But I called Chris Poirier at Perform Better, and I said, listen, I need some plyo boxes. I need Stop. some balance beams. I need some hurdles. I need some, I need some battling ropes. I need some little bitty sandbags. I need this. I need that. And I need the great cook discount as quick as possible. And Danielle and I donated this equipment and we simply started one day a week running an American Ninja Warrior obstacle course age appropriate. Oh, you think you're good on the obstacle course? Now we're going to do it with a beanbag on your head. Now you can't look at your feet on the balance beam. Oh, you can jump off the bleachers and stick the landing. Now do it with a beanbag on your head. So anyway, last year as a Christmas present, we gave all the kids the, uh, the black foam rolls that are sliced in half long ways. So it's round on one side and flat on the other. Oh yeah. 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 You, you walk on the log for a minute and then you walk on the uh, balance beam for a minute or the, the wobble board for a minute. But anyway, I'm taking the kids through this. Well, it's a private school. So I say, all right, everybody's shoes and socks go off. If I was in a public school, I'd already have to budget for four pounds of hand sanitizer and, and deal with the mom that wanted a kid to wear a helmet on the balance beam. But I don't. I just do what I want. I'm like, you can't fire me. I'm here for free. So all the kids take your shoes off. Where I, we gave every kid in the school a half foam roll. They took it home, and guess what happened by February last year? Kids were coming to the office trying to buy a foam roll for their mom because she saw them exercising while they were watching TV, and she said she wanted to do it with them. <laughs> there you go. We did movement screen. We did movement screens and balance tests on, tests on those kids at the beginning of the year and at the end of the year. 
and they had more improvement than most PE programs. They got five days a week. We had one day of week intervention and there was no exercise. They don't know what a set and a rep is. I expose them to physical obstacles. Some kids pass, some kids fail, but the kids that fail were patterning the kids that were passing and they fixed it by a week or two. Yesterday we ran obstacle courses and did tug of war for every kid at the end of the year. And one of my one of my personal friends is Buddy Lee. He's a self-trained Greco-Roman wrestler uh, from the '92 Olympics, but he's the world-renowned expert in jump rope. And if you've ever seen him, uh, it's freakish what he can do with a jump rope. Well, I met him uh, in uh, Richmond a few weeks ago to do some business, and he donated jump ropes to the kids. So. <laughs> He's going to come and make an appearance and, and we're going to do, you know, jump ropes with the kids. But, you know, it's, it's just unbelievably rewarding to watch unbiased neurological systems grow with just a little sunlight and water. You and I got to navigate very complex, degenerated, painful <laughs> uh, neurological systems with a shitload of bad mileage on them. How refreshing it is to see how adaptable and plastic the human brain and body is if you simply feed it the right nutrient of movement. Golden. And, uh, um, man, that's really good. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful that you failed a test in PT school and it smacked <laughs> right upside the head. Well, the other attribute of dyslexia is my left and right hemisphere on at the same time. So it's either really confusing or really clear. And you can see a thousand miles or you can't see in front of your face some days. But, Mine was uh, uh, go vasovagal. So in school when they, when they did, we were doing a, a pathology lab and drawing shots of blood, I went out cold, smacked my head on the table <laughs> to the doctors and they're like, yeah, you have a concussion, but we think you have ADHD as well. I was like, you know what? I think you're right. <laughs> and I went down that path and, and uh, everything's been much better ever since I realized that my brain operates a little differently than everybody else's and respected. Oh, my, my sister's, no, it, it's, my sister's a school psychologist and about 10 years ago at Christmas, my mom pulled out my elementary school report cards. Oh God. Now they're reading my teacher's comments <laughs> with a modern perspective. And my sister's like, I could have diagnosed you in kindergarten nope look here in first grade <laughs> here it is again and it's all the comments are like you know um gray's looking out the window too much he's watching the guy mow grass instead of paying attention to the board but when i call on him he knows the answer and i'm like i'm giving you my ears you can't have my eyes <laughs> i got yeah. adhd my <laughs> eyes are going to go to the shiny thing but you can have my ears i'm listening and to this day i consume most of my information through audiobooks if if i can so that's why that's why I have all the time in the world with uh, podcast and guys who are doing some of the good stuff you're doing, because I wouldn't if, if somebody put this in the newsletter or memo, I just I simply don't have the yeah. time or frustration to read it when I could listen to it once. And it's it's in there forever. Yeah. And listen to it at one point five speed as well. Yeah. If you're in a hurry. Well, my, my wife talks at 2.5 speed anyway, because <laughs> when I met her, she was an auctioneer. So half the time on the cell phone, I'm like, I didn't get that first minute and a half, but I like the way it's going. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I announced to the group, I announced to the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance that you are going to be our keynote speaker at uh, Forward 2019. It's at Logan University at, in St. Louis, Missouri. Beautiful campus, beautiful facility. Uh, we broke the internet with that post. I, I didn't expect so many people to be super excited. I knew, obviously, if I asked you to be the keynote speaker that they'd be excited, but I didn't know they would blow up like that. So 
this, these are your people. They're excited to hear from you. Um, we're going to have a good time. No, I, I think, I think we will too. And, and, uh, I get excited about these kind of things because, because it's not just preaching to the choir. That's not what I'm excited about. I'm excited to actually say, okay, on that platform that you guys really like, now let's add this and see what happens. Now let's add this. So as soon as we get a perspective or a movement baseline, now we can challenge each other. Who can correct it quicker? What system does better in this situation? Without a baseline, we just sit around and blog all the time. So, you know, I, I like to go now and if I've got a group of people that are really on fire about baselining movement as a, as a vital sign of doing things, okay, now let's throw stuff at it and let's really answer these questions one by one in real time, not in a sterile environment or a double blind study. And nobody asked me to do this, but I'll do it since we talked about it so much. Uh, the Stanford event with Stu McGill, a great cook, and Craig Levinson. That video, that DVD is still available. It's at OTP Books on Target Publications. Uh, you can get that video. Uh, if you can get a hold of Laree, uh, give her a big hug. She's the best, and she makes Oh, my God. She, she makes us all look good. Anytime we write, she makes us look good. But I'll tell you this, uh, for those of you that don't want DVDs, she went through the um, detail of making it a download and a PDF, uh, I think. Yeah, there's, there's a digital. PDF uh, yeah. So the digital version can, can live on any device you got. You don't have to lug around the, the DVDs. But at the time, you know, it was a few years back, it was smart to do it both ways. But I think we always knew it would, it would exist more as a download. But no, I invite people to, you know, don't just watch it. Watch it and put yourself in our shoes. Both those guys are uncomfortable up there because we respect the person we're getting ready to, at least in some person's mind, disagree with. And so don't just, don't just watch it for entertainment value. Step, step into mine or Stu's or Craig's shoes, and you'll see that it could have gone bad if one of us had let ego uh, get control of the situation. But I think none of us did because movement was a star of that show, not us. Yes, thank you for that leadership because that set an example. Both of you, all three of you, um, set the example that uh, we got to put this stuff ahead of ourselves uh, if we're going to do what really matters most, which is taking care of people, saving, saving lives, as they say. Yep. Um, yep. Let's do it again, man. Let's, let's, we'll, we'll create more fun as we go. I'm sure we're going to create some questions from this and, uh, and I'll, I'll send you some questions if you get some good ones along the way and let's do it again. All right. And I'll send, I'll send one out to your group and we'll let a bunch of uh, people talk about this before we reconcile it. You know, the statement, proximal stability gives rise to distal mobility yeah well i'd like to sharpen my knife and dissect that down because i don't think there are any flaws in the statement but i think if we don't use our semantics correctly that we will make an assumption that scientifically we should not make so i can both tell you why i agree with that statement but i will also prove to you why I disagree with the way people use it to justify what they just chose to do. So I think that would, that would be a great place to both sign off because I don't want somebody's knee-jerk reaction to that statement. Is that statement always true? And I will leave you one tidbit. Is that an observation or a process? And we'll pick it back up there. And now I obligated us to talk about this again, but I can't think of anybody I'd rather talk about with it than, than you and some of the stuff you've done because that your group is the group that deserves to confront this because I think they will do it 
with with good objectivity in mind. I think if you got to roll through the roster of people who are in the group, just on the chiropractic side of things, you'd be quite impressed with the the, the minds that are in there. Um, we are we've also started accepting physical therapists into the group as well because this event at Logan University is supposed to be multidisciplinary. We want everybody there because yeah, you speak the same language. Before you know it, you'll just call it forward thinking rehabilitation. That would be awesome. You know, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, you're the ideas guy, man. I'll <laughs> push a button and change that right now. <laughs> and and whenever I announce my new ideas to Lee Burton, the CEO of FMS, he goes, "Yeah, and how are we going to pay for that?" Like the same <laughs> way we did all the other shit. We'll figure yeah. it out. <laughs> I've got one of those. That's my wife right now, and it's also Dr. Ann Maurer. She's like, "Uh oh, here comes another idea." <laughs> yep, yep. All right, boss. Hope you uh, score. Um, but you're starting to get towards twilight, so things should happen right now up in your deer stand. We'll see. I, I, hey, if if I don't get one today, then I got another excuse to go back out. And I got a house full of women, so every now and then hunting is more about what I'm not doing at home than what I'm doing in a tree stand or in a sniper, sniper tower. So I get you. I get you. We're brothers from a different mother. <laughs> Listen, man, uh, happy holidays, and thank you for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. All right, man. I appreciate you, too. Bye. Yes, that was great cook, everybody. And now it's time for the pain zone finish. Dun, dun, dun. However, a mild note of irony is that when it comes to podcasting with Gray Cook, we are not finished. Uh, Gray wants to do a series, and each series is probably going to be predicated with a, a, a small challenge to the audience. Uh, what I've learned about the masters, especially watching people like Gray and Stu, is that this, this world that you live in as you pursue mastery in this profession is not didactic. You do not sit there and receive information download it into your lovely brainstem, and then all of a sudden, voila, you're a master. It's application, trial and error, two steps forward, one step back, and it's when you get involved and you do things and you show up to events and seminars and uh, symposiums and meetups and, heck, even coffee with somebody, you show up ready to put some work in. So uh, I think this question that, that Gray sort of proposed at the end about proximal stability giving rise to distal mobility is a test of you FTCA members and listeners out there to see what you got in response. So on our Facebook group, the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance, uh, we're going to pose this question. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to set up a little survey device so that you guys can respond with some thoughtful responses to what uh, Gray Cook is asking you to to think about with his final question there in the podcast. Um, also, one more time before we head out, uh, the Forward 2019 is our big annual event, Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. Gray Cook will be there. Uh, I can't even list all the, the speakers that we have that are that are scheduled to be there but uh, it is multidisciplinary in nature kairos dcs athletic trainers uh you know if occupational therapists we are trying to 
bridge a gap here casually. We're not here to cut red ribbons and make a big political statement that we are all, we're all one family. We're not going to make a We Are the World video for everybody to hold hands and sing. We're just going to hang out, and we're going to listen to people like Gray Cook, and then we're going to listen to people like Brett Winchester, and then we're going to listen to people like Annie O'Connor, author of A World of Hurt. We're going to listen to pain science people, Feldenkrais people, motivational interviewing, different approaches and procedures and thoughts and directions on how to take care of people the way we do and do it the best way that we think we need to do, which is the evidence-informed and responsible approach to care that the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance stands for. Uh, So if you want to look into Forward 2019, I don't even think we have a website launched yet. But we do have a Facebook events page. It's called Forward Chiropractic Events. And on Forward Chiropractic Events, you can like that page and you can follow and you could read up on all about Forward 19 as things develop. Other than that, this podcast is over. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Gray Cook and look forward to more of that and look forward to more great guests as Forward, the podcast of the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance continues. Take care.